Welcome to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers, an enlightening discussion about life and law created to elevate and inspire trial lawyers. I am Renee Rothage. Judge Barbara Lynn has been a U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas for 23 years. In 2016, she became the Chief Judge, the first female chief in Texas history. A summa cum laude graduate of UVA, Judge Lynn graduated first in her class from SMU Law School. She then joined the Dallas firm of Carrington and Coleman, where she remained until she took the bench. She is a member of the Honorable Barbara M.G. Lynn American Inn of Court and two other inns, as well as currently serving as the president of that organization. She has been named Judge of the Year by the Dallas Chapter of ABOTA, as well as many other awards. She's been recognized by the International Women's Forum with the Women Who Make a Difference Award. And she's also the judicial advisor to the patent projects of the Sedona Conference. Finally, she has served as chair of the ABA's section of litigation and judicial division. And it is my pleasure to be here today with living legend and award-winning Judge Barbara Lynn of the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. I mentioned awards. I won't talk about all of them today because they're too vast. It would take up the entire hour. But I will note that Judge Lynn is a fellow in the American College, and she was a recent recipient of the prestigious Samuel E. Gates Litigation Award, which is an award that is near and dear to many of our listeners. Judge Lynn, I'd like to ask you, what did you think when you got the call and learned that you had won the Samuel E. Gates Litigation Award? That was a wonderful day, Renee. I remember very well that my friend, former president of the college, Rodney Acker, sent me a message that he was anxious to talk to me. And so, of course, I called him back and he gave me the wonderful news that I was the recipient of the Samuel Gates Award. That was a very happy day. It was a happy day for a variety of reasons, but particularly because the recognition was based primarily on work that I and others in my chambers had done to have trials during COVID. So I really appreciated very much that wonderful recognition by the college. Well, I'm going to ask you a little bit about that later, but I'd like to start with your early years. And what caused you to select law as a career? High school, I was a debater and public speaker and seemed natural to go from that to being a lawyer. I didn't have any lawyers in my family we had a family friend who was a lawyer who actually was not terribly encouraging of me, but I really enjoyed a good argument around the supper table, and I thought law might be a good outlet for that. It wasn't a very scientific interest, but just something that I thought would be good given the skill set that I had. I heard somewhere that you were elected to be the secretary of your student council. I was the secretary of my senior class. And I will say I was more than a bit of a nerd. And so I've reflected on how I got elected. And I just caught up with my campaign manager, who was a cheerleader. And she doesn't remember it this way, but I do. 
that the way I ensured my election was to make myself scarce and let her be the face of my election process. And then I got elected. I'm not sure most people knew they were actually voting for me rather than for her. But my maiden name was Golden, which was quite catchy for campaign slogans. That's how I got elected. I figured out the best way was not to be out front in my own campaign. You sound like a true, yeah, very strategic politician. And I, can we call you Judge Golden for the remainder of this program? Because that is terrific. I've been married almost 49 years and my name has been Lynn all that time. So I'm going to say no, Renee. Understood. <laughs> Did you consider other career options? The last thing I can remember wanting to be before I decided to become a lawyer was to be a fireman. And after that, I decided I want to be a lawyer and I never had any real interest in doing anything else. I did have a lot of different interests in terms of what I would do as a lawyer. And I went through several phases before I decided to join a law firm and have a varied litigation practice. That also that leads to, leads to one of my next questions is, did you always know that you wanted to go into trial work or did you look at other possible legal avenues? No, I always wanted to be a trial lawyer. I wasn't sure what kind of substantive work I wanted to do. I first had an interest in criminal law and that same family friend who was a lawyer really discouraged me from that. And that is one of very few examples in my life where I have been discouraged by another person and actually took it to heart. I think in hindsight, that was probably a good decision. I don't really think criminal defense practice would have been my cup of tea. And then I thought about being a plaintiff's personal injury lawyer and then decided against that and finally settled in the general realm of commercial litigation. You and I have something in common, which is that we always wanted to be a trial lawyer from very young. I think we also have in common that we were inspired by Perry Mason. Do I understand that he was... A, tell me about you, that your inspiration from Perry Mason. So I loved watching Perry Mason as a kid. And I wondered why Della Street was not actually a lawyer, because it seemed to me that without Della Street, who, those of you who might not have watched the original Perry Mason, Della Street in the current version of Perry Mason, is just one tick short of actually being a lawyer. But back then, she was, I think, his secretary. But she was really the power behind the throne. And I thought, why is she not getting any of the credit for this? And P.S., we're all the women lawyers. And so in my mind, that show could have been called Perry and Della because she was just as important to the outcome in his cases as he was. But he was a terrific TV lawyer. And there was always this moment after the investigation by Paul Drake, his investigator, where he would have the moment where the other side would collapse on the stand. It took me a couple of years to realize that rarely happened, but that good preparation made for good results most of the time. You anticipated my next question, which is, did you ever have one of those Perry Mason moments? I have yet to have one. Myself. Yes, I did have one. You did. Well, uh, your Perry I, Mason moment. So, this is, I've been out of law practice for 23 years, but when I think back about my most significant cases, I had a case tried before one of my now colleagues and my very close friend, a lawyer from San Francisco, Bob Julian, he and I tried a case together 
And we actually were the defendants and counterclaimants. And we ended up recovering over $7 million on our counterclaim, which was probably 30 years ago. So that was a big judgment. And the we called a witness for the other party adverse. And I had him and I just did a number on him. He was a puddle by the end of my, I will say in hindsight, brilliant examination. of him. <laughs> And later on, they called him in rebuttal. They called him back. No, and I just another shot at him. And I did it all again. That never happened before or since that I had one of those devastating examinations of a witness, and then I got to do it again. And it was even more fun the second time. That was a bit of a Perry Mason moment times two. With an incredible financial result for the client. I'm glad you were able to live out your TV dreams. <laughs> yes, indeed. Let's turn to your reputation as a groundbreaker, a pioneer. You have so many firsts, and it would it'd be hard to know which one to pick. So I'm going to preview that I'm going to ask you to pick the first female chief judge, the first female in the co-ed class at the University of Virginia, first female member of the Jefferson Literary and Debate Society, the first female associate at a very prestigious firm in Dallas, and their first female partner. So of all the firsts that you have been, is there any that are particularly special to you? I think probably the Jefferson Society. So that's a bit of a story. So as you said, Renee, I was in the first class of women to enter the college at the University of Virginia. And I did not know at that time that the university was not requiring the clubs of the university to co-educate. I thought everything was co-ed. And that was my thought when I started, and I think that view was shared by most of my female colleagues. But it wasn't. The university decided that it was up to us to encourage the clubs of the university to change their policies if they were not co-ed. As I mentioned before, I was a high school debater and public speaker, and I wanted to join the Jefferson Literary Debating Society, which was the second oldest Greek letter society in the United States, went back to the 1800s. And so I started attending, actually started attending with my now husband of almost 50 years, Mike Lynn, who was a member. And I quickly found out that women could not join. The bylaws required that all members be met. And to change the bylaws required a two-thirds vote. And the hall was divided basically as our country is today, 50-50. I was permitted to speak when recognized as a guest and because I attended the meetings regularly. I knew everybody, and they gave me a lot of opportunities to speak. In fact, I won their speech contest, which I think had never been won by someone who was not a member of the Just Society. Every semester, I would show up for interviews because the bylaws required them to interview any applicants for membership. They weren't thinking ahead that those might be women. So, those who did not want to change the policy made it a point to be on the interview committee, and they asked me pretty offensive questions every semester to try to deter me from reapplying, but that did not work. Usually, I would end the interview by saying, is that all you've got? Because the questions last semester were much more offensive than these, and that really irritated them. So by this point, my husband was the vice president. This was the spring of my second year. 
and the conservative members who were opposed to co-educating the Jeff Society went off to Mardi Gras, during which time my husband was the acting president. And he did a quick head count, decided he could have a quorum, called a special meeting, and they voted for co-education by one vote. Then the conservative members returned from their trip to New Orleans with the policy having been changed, and they didn't have the votes to undo it. So I became the first member of the Jefferson Literary and Debating Society that was a woman. That was the beginning of my career in the Jeff Society and the end of my husband's political career. He remained an active member, but he was on the way to becoming president. But the members who went to New Orleans were not about to vote for him for president. He did a sacrificial act for my benefit, which I greatly appreciate. And that was really a meaningful part of my college experience to be a member of the Jeff Society. So I appreciated that whole experience. And I have to say it toughened me up for the other firsts that I experienced later on. Everything was easier after that experience, I take it. Yes, I think that's true. Let's move to the next phase in your life. And you you went to law school and you came out of law school. And I and this is a very unusual event I want to ask you about because not many judges can say that fresh out of law school, they helped file a lawsuit against some of the most influential law firms in their jurisdiction. Tell us a little bit about that decision and what happened. Actually, it started while I was still in law school. As I remember, there were about 15% women in my class in law school at Southern Methodist University, now known as Dedman College of Law. And we did very well. Of the women in my class, of the top 10 students, five were women, including number one and number two. And so we thought things were just going to be peachy for us when we applied to law firms. And it just wasn't the case. We were comparing notes. Women were being asked questions about how they were going to be, particularly if they were interested in trial work, how could they be trial lawyers and have dinner on the table for their husbands when they got home from work? And how could we expect to have children and be trial lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. And the firms, generally speaking, were just not very interested in hiring women. So we all compared notes. We formed an organization called the Association of Women Law Students. We tried to get a lawyer. None of the firms outside were interested in representing us. And we got one of our professors, Neil Kogan, who I really regard as the hero of the piece because he paid a greater price than any of us individually did. And he filed a lawsuit for us. We sued five Dallas law firms. As I remember, one of them there was no jurisdiction because they did not have the requisite number of employees. The other cases all settled except for one, which went to trial many years after I started practicing law as a lawyer with my firm. I was actually very fortunate because I had worked at Carrington Coleman after my first year in law school, had a wonderful experience there, wanted to work there. So this bad experience in the interview market did not affect my career, although it did my colleagues. And that case was tried two or three years after I began practicing. And I will say, I believe primarily as a consequence of the filing of the lawsuit, the one firm that went to trial had really modified its numbers, had hired a lot of women. And so by the time we went to trial, there were a lot of women at the firm and we were not successful 
in terms of the litigation itself, but I think in terms of the big picture, we were very successful. I will say that at the time I involved myself in that, I recognized that I might be jeopardizing my career long term. So I did not see that I would finish my career by being a federal judge. That was something that happened in my mind in spite of my involvement, but it was the right thing to do. We were being treated unfairly. There was a firm, for example, that did not pursue me, and their explanation on paper was that they were not interested in hiring me because of my strong ties to the state of New York. The fact was I had moved from New York to Florida when I was four years old. I never lived in New York again, and I was married to my husband, who was a Texan. I think it's pretty fair to say that was just a false explanation for the action. We took it a bit on the chin, those of us who were involved, to do the right thing long term, and I'm proud of my involvement. Yes, and we are all grateful to you for that work and the risks you took to to bring more equality to the bar. Speaking of bars and that case, you're the opposing counsel in that case, and you later on had some kind of conversation, I think, and he encouraged you to get in bar activities. Do you remember? Yes, I do. He's passed away. His name was Bob Gwynn. He was an excellent trial lawyer. And of course, I didn't hold it against Bob personally that he was representing the opponent in the case where I was a plaintiff. That was his job. And I really liked him personally. And I think he liked me personally. I might have been his only friend who he actually deposed, but we got along very well. He became the president of the Dallas Bar Association, and he appointed me to a very significant committee chair position. I believe it was the Judiciary Committee, which was a very prestigious spot. I very much appreciated it. I was developing my interest in becoming a bar junkie, and I'm still a bar junkie, and I credit Bob for putting me on that road. So another good thing that came out of the lawsuit from my perspective. Yes. I was wondering, what has been your most rewarding bar activity of all? You've done so much over the years. Once again, if I talked about all your activities, all your committees you were involved in, we would be here all day. But give us a maybe a synopsis. Of how- I'll mention just a few, Renee. I was the chair of the section of litigation of the American Bar Association 1998 to 1999. My nomination to become a federal judge was pending during at least half of that year. So that was very challenging. I had to be a little more discreet than my normal tendencies would suggest while my nomination was pending. And that was a wonderful year. The litigation section at that time was about 60,000 members. And we got a lot of very important work done for the trial bar, plaintiff's defense, criminal, civil. It was just a very rewarding representative group of trial lawyers. Next, I later became the chair of the Judicial Division of the American Bar Association. When I changed my stripes to become a judge instead of a lawyer, I was encouraged to get on the ladder to become chair of the Judicial Division, which I did, and I had a great year representing judges in the American Bar Association. People said to me, what are you going to do next, Senior Lawyers Division? And I said, absolutely not. And of course, I've had a great set of activities in the college. I'm involved in the Committee on Advocacy in the 21st Century, which has been very thought-provoking. And I work closely with a number of people, particularly 
John Day and Rodney Acker got me involved in that, and that's been terrific. But right now, I will mention that I'm the president of the American In Support, and that is an organization that I hold very dear, and that has been a wonderful event for me to be the president. I'm halfway through my two-year term right now. I actually had noticed that, and I also am an In Support member and have been in my local jurisdiction for 30-plus years, and really think it's an incredible organization. So I was going to ask you about, have you done anything in your during your presidency that you could share with us that you're proud of? My number one uh, goal is to expand the number of ends of court throughout the United States. So anybody who's watching, if you are not a member of an American Inn of Court, call me, 214-753-2420. Call me and I will encourage you and help you in getting an end of court in your local area. Because to me, American Inns of Court are the best way for more senior lawyers to mentor more junior lawyers. And that is important to the future of our profession. I'd love to see it expand. We have about 30,000 members. And given that there are over a million lawyers in the United States, we have a lot of room for growth. It is critically important to the future of the profession that we members of the judiciary do our part to appropriately pass on the aspects of our profession that we think are important. And I think the more senior we are, the more important we realize it is to pass on these values of ethics, integrity, hard work, diligence, and excellence. And what, frankly, brings people to American Inn of Court meetings and to join local American Inns of Court is the opportunity for lawyers to meet and get to know judges. And we're not doing our part for the future of the profession if we judges do not embrace that and participate as actively as we can. Let me let me finish up with a few more questions on your trial career before we move on. I was wondering if there is a, a memorable case other than your Perry Mason case we've already discussed. Was there any other memorable case that you handled that either meant a lot to you because of the result or the people you were representing? I tried a case with one of my colleagues and one of my mentors, Bob Mao, who was also a member of the college. And Bob had this wonderful and annoying habit of writing notes in inscrutable handwriting and then folding them up like an accordion and passing them to you during the trial. And so this was my very first trial, a very big fraud case. And Bob handed me one of those notes and you, you really couldn't read it if you tried, but you had to unfold it before you could even get all the words on the page. And finally, I sat down next to him. I took a break for a minute. I said, Bob, if you want to communicate to me, you have to do it in such a way as I can understand what you are saying to me. So until you do that, I'm flying on my own wings. He let me try a case under a special disposition where I passed the bar while the trial was going on. That was, I think, such a significant case to me because I had a real role in it. I was sitting at the elbow of a fantastic trial lawyer who really had my best interests at heart. I got to watch him do brilliant examinations and I got to do a couple of decent directs. That was a great way to get started in being a trial lawyer. Good for him for taking you to trial. 
Is there anyone who influenced your trial style? You had a lot of great, you were surrounded by a lot of great trial lawyers. So I'm just. So Garrington Coleman, as far as I'm concerned, was the very best trial firm there was in Dallas. And it was a complete coincidence that I went to work there. I really didn't do a lot of due diligence. It was happenstance that caused me to go to Carrington Coleman. I won an award that the firm gave at that time to the student at SMU who was first in the class after their first year. And that was me. So I got invited down to lunch with the partners. They gave me an engraved watch. And then I found out how great they were and I ended up going to work there. So it was all just a set of coincidences, but they were a fabulous trial firm. So I was mentored by three senior trial lawyers at Carrington Coleman. Bob Mao, who I've already mentioned, Fletcher Yarbrough, also a member of the college, and Jim Coleman, also a member of the college. So I had three of the best trial lawyers in America. Bob was a very active trial lawyer who handled a whole variety of cases. That was Jim's background and experience also. Fletcher handled mostly the big case. So I worked with all of them. I went to trial with all of them. They all shared one thing in common other than being magnificent trial lawyers. They all wanted to develop younger lawyers, and their motto was, steal the client. And what they meant was, Barb, you put yourself in position with this client where the next time they come to the firm, they want you instead of any one of us. There was nothing territorial about the client. Jim, in particular, he'd get me involved in a case, and then he would disappear. And he would only come back at the end if the client insisted. And occasionally, the client insisted. They wanted a more senior person than me. And I will say about Jim Coleman, I have never met a faster study than him. I remember this case went on for a couple of years. I took all the depositions. I had all the exchanges with the client. Case is getting ready to go to trial, and I have to give Jim a briefing. And after one day of a briefing, he knew that case better than I did, and I was the one giving the briefing. I never could figure out how that could be true, but it was. He was just a wonderful trial lawyer. So each of them passed on what they knew about being great trial lawyers, but they also gave me the opportunity to step in and do good works. Now, most of the cases I handled over the years as is true for anyone who handles commercial litigation. Most of the cases settled, but to be a great trial lawyer, you have to have the other side know that you are willing to go to trial and that you weren't afraid. And whenever I knew that the lawyer on the other side would never go to trial, they talked a big game, but they weren't gutsy enough to actually do it, I had the upper hand every time. Our firm trained young lawyers to be willing to go to trial, to be confident to go to trial. And I learned that from the combination of working with all three of the gentlemen I mentioned. Is there any wisdom that you could garner from your experience with those three that you would pass on to the next generation of trial lawyers? My general motto about life is if you want something, ask for it. Generally speaking, people are too timid about saying what they want. You can't be obnoxious, but if you want to take a witness 
in a trial and you're the third chair, go to the senior lawyer and say, I'd like to take a witness. The worst thing that can happen is they'll say, no, you're not in any worse shape than you were before. And they'll admire your moxie and ask you. So I made it clear from the very beginning that I wanted to be a trial lawyer. I didn't want to overstep my bounds. I wasn't as good as any of them were when I started, although I was as good as all of them were when I finished. And that's because they taught me how to do it. But you can't learn how to be a great trial lawyer by just sitting there and watching. That's an important aspect of it, but you have to do it too. And you, your first outing might not be the greatest achievement. You'll get better. You have to practice. Every one of them recognized that. They didn't expect that a good lawyer came out as such out of the womb. You had to learn. And they gave me plenty of opportunities to learn and to practice. So the number one thing that I would say is if you're not working with a person who's going to make you go out and take a witness, then ask to take a witness because that's the best thing you can do. And if you want to get involved in a case that you're not already involved in and you're really busy, you've got to decide if you can make time in your schedule to do both things. Now, I have a very good friend who works for the Center for Brain Health here in Dallas, and she tells me over and over again that multitasking is bad for your brain. That's too late for me because I've been multitasking since I was about five years old. And so if I wanted to get involved in a case and it was going to keep me from sleeping as much, then I just didn't sleep as much. Because the best way to be a great trial lawyer is to work with great trial lawyers in a trial. So if, there, if there's an opportunity for you to do that, even if you weren't assigned to the case, even if you won't get to take a witness, there is a great value in watching a great trial lawyer practice his or her craft. Excellent, excellent advice. Let's turn to the next phase of your career, which is your judicial phase. I actually had no thoughts about becoming a judge until the early 1990s. There was a vacancy on the Northern District of Texas, and I thought about it, and I thought, I think I would be a good judge, and I would contribute to my community and to my profession if I tried to become a judge. I wasn't interested in becoming a state court judge because here in Texas, our state court judges run for election, and I did not and do not have the stomach for that. So... Because there was a vacancy, I decided, I talked to people in the firm, including the lawyers who I mentioned, they were happy and sad at the same time that I was considering doing that. But they were all encouraging of me. And I applied for the position. I didn't get it. I went back to being a lawyer and loved being a lawyer. About five years later, there was a vacancy that was about to arise that I didn't know was available because the candidate was not moving. There was a political debate about the candidate and he was going to withdraw the next day, unbeknownst to me. So my congressman, Martin Frost, who was the senior Democrat in the delegation in North Texas, called me to encourage me to put my name in for it. And they did not intend to interview other candidates because it was pretty late in President Clinton's second administration. It took me about two weeks to decide to go forward with it because 
I really loved being a lawyer. I loved my firm. I was a member of the executive committee moving up in that and wasn't sure I wanted to give all that up. But I thought about it for two weeks and then decided to throw my hat in the ring and it took about a year. I was the last Clinton nominee confirmed in Texas. And as I say, it took about a year during which time I was still an active trial lawyer at my firm. It was very challenging to bring in new business and then have clients say, will you be here to try my case? And the bubble above my head was reading, I hope not, but I had to do what I could to recognize the reality. I wasn't a judge. I didn't know if I would become a judge. At that time, it was hit or miss whether I would get through. So I kept doing my job and bringing in business for the firm. But after a pretty torturous year, I was successful in my effort. Did you get a call? Like, how do they tell you? It was, I'll give you the prelude, which was pretty awful. I was in Wichita, Kansas for mediation with an associate of mine who later became our United States attorney. And I got a call from the White House that that very day they would be confirming judges. And there was a backlog of judges who had been nominated, persons who had been nominated to be judges. And we all carried around a list that had our numbers because when they confirmed a lot of people together, they typically just called your number. They didn't even announce your name. So I had my list and turned on C-SPAN. Sure enough, they're calling numbers and I'm checking everyone off. And I end up checking every number off, saved one, mine. No. And then they moved on to something else. So, of course, I had no explanation for this. The White House called to find out what bad thing I had done. And, of course, I hadn't done anything. They had no idea what had happened. But Senator Kay Bailey Hutchison, who was a Republican senator, but my good friend and staunch supporter, called me and assured me this really had nothing to do with me. It was a political issue unrelated to me, and it would go away. And in fact, it did in a week. But that was a very long week. So I got another call telling me that I would be confirmed on this particular day, turn on C-SPAN again. But this time, I went in the conference room at my firm. I told no one except my husband, and I locked the door. So no one could come in there in case I was a basket case weeping uncontrollably on the floor at the end. But in fact, they called my number and the rest was history. I did get a call later that day from Senator Hutchison and from uh, Congressman Frost, who really was responsible for my name being given to the president. So that was a lovely end to a long story. As I've said, for people who move on to another judicial appointment. It feels a lot like having a baby. If you can remember the pain, you would never consider doing it again. I, it's fascinating that you got the news from C-SPAN initially. I had I didn't even know that was a thing. So thank you for sharing <laughs> that story. How was the transition from being a trial lawyer to a judge? It was pretty easy. I had been a very active trial lawyer. On the criminal side, I really didn't know anything about it. I had a few appointments as a member of the bar for indigent persons who needed counsel because at that time we didn't have a public defender. But generally speaking, it was pretty easy. I knew what judges did. I didn't think it was as hard as it actually is. It looked easier than 
it actually is. And there were a lot of things that I didn't know. I thought I had practiced law about 23 years. I've now been on the bench for 23 years. And I thought I knew most of what I would see, but there are a lot of statutes that I had nothing to do with. And on the criminal side, I had to learn it, but it wasn't all that difficult. I think it's easier to come from civil and learn the criminal work than vice versa. So I studied pretty hard. I was confirmed at the end of 99. I didn't actually take office until Valentine's Day of 2000. So from the beginning of the year until then, I just came into the office and read through files. I didn't get paid. I just got myself up to speed on my own nickel so that I'd know what I had. But I was pretty candid if there was something that I didn't know anything about. And I did this quite frequently in the criminal area. I'd say I didn't know. I'll give you a funny example of that. So a Form 302, for those of you who are not aware of that, is a form that is generally filled out by an FBI agent when a person who is a witness to an offense is being interviewed. And so I had a hearing early on in a criminal case, and all the lawyers are Form 302-ing this and Form 302-ing that. And I have not a clue. And this was back in 2000. You can't Google anything like you can now. And so they're really, I didn't even know where to begin to look. So finally, I thought to myself, you've got lifetime tenure. Just confess stupidity and move on. So I said to the lawyers, thank you for assuming I know what you're talking about, but I don't. What's a Form 302? And Eureka, they told me. And the U.S. attorney at that time who was a close friend of mine and remains a close friend of mine, sent me a document entitled Numbers You Need to Know. <laughs> and he put them all in one document so I could study what I needed to. I'm pretty good at faking my way through, but there are a lot of things about my job that faking your way through won't work for. Well, cliff notes for judges, bravo. I mean, that sounds like something everybody would love to have. Numbers. Well, you know, we go to judge school. Some of our viewers might not know that this is called by everybody who goes to it, baby judges school. And there are two parts of it, and it's invaluable. But there are a lot of things that you don't learn there that you have to learn on the job. And that's one of them. They do not give you the handy list of every number that you need to know. So it was very helpful to get the cliff notes for criminal matters. So do you find yourself being a mentor to new judges now and trying to help them? Yes, on my court. Yes, I've always volunteered to be that for our new judges. And I've done that for many of our judges. I give them forms that I use for their benefit or to revise as they deem appropriate. I'm always available for calls from them. I have sat in to watch them, to give them advice, invited them to sit in with me. Sometimes they actually have sat with me on the bench. So yes, I consider that a responsibility to do what I can to help them. And I had as a invaluable mentor, Judge Barefoot Sanders on the organizational chart. I am his successor. He was still here for many years after I started as a senior judge, but he was just down the hall from me, and there was a a well-trodden place in the carpet where I made my way down there often. And I remember 
One time I had a case involving a member of the Dallas Cowboys who was a very highly regarded person by the public and got himself involved with a marijuana operation pretty large in Texas and Louisiana. And I was speaking to him in sentencing and I was talking about how he was a role model for younger people. He was the kind of guy that people really admire and they'd love to have him over for dinner and how disappointing this was, blah, 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 blah. And I was pretty new as a judge at that time and I'm exaggerating, but only slightly. The article came out in the paper and essentially said, Judge Lynn wants to have dinner with someone. <sighs> and Barefoot came to work in the morning, called me up and he said, Barb, come down here for a little chat. Which and he gave me a little lecture well received by me about how talking too much might not be the best thing for him. I was very receptive to any advice he gave me. He was the mentor to me as a judge, just Jim and Fletcher and Bob were to me as a lawyer. So is that why you were selected as the first female Chief Justice, was that an honor or was that drawing a short straw? How does that uh, work? It's, it's neither. Oh. Generally, you become the chief judge because you're still here <laughs> and, you're, and you're eligible. It's really tenure-based. One of our judges, fortunately now departed, Judge George Solis, had been the chief judge and he ended up retiring during his term as chief. Otherwise, I would never have become the chief. So I became eligible to be the chief, it's a difficult task. It's an administrative job. It's also a job where you speak for the court. And sometimes you don't realize that you're not speaking as the court would like you to until you've already done it. People have asked me, that's a job like herding cats. And I said, I wouldn't put it that way. Sometimes it's more of the guy at the circus who's standing with the in the cage with the lions on their stools, except they take away his whip. So that might be a little more of an accurate way to describe it. I'm half kidding. It's a tough job because there's a lot of administrative work. Judges rightly are independent of each other. The chief judge doesn't tell the other judges what to do. Chief judge doesn't make assignments to the other judges. The chief tries to represent the court and help the court in all kinds of ways, particularly with respect to the budget and staffing issues with the administrative office of the court. So it's a tough job. I know my colleagues appreciated the work that I did for the court. And I, of course, greatly appreciate the work that my successor, Chief Judge Godby, is doing. There are, I think, five members of our court who are still on the court who have been chiefs. Chief judges I've spoken to, it's a hard job. It's an extra job in addition to the job you already do. And I, and you were you were excellent, of course. You brought the excellence you bring to everything to that job. Let's talk briefly about the pandemic. You had mentioned that earlier, and that was one of the reasons that you were recognized by the college with the Samuel E. Gates Award, is that your role and how you reacted to the pandemic and what you did for the trial bar. You were one of the first judges in the country to hold in-person jury trials after the pandemic hit with its full force in March of 2020, or I guess should I say you suspended trials for a few months and then began them again that summer. And I was 
wondering what motivated you to take such steps so quickly when everyone else was just trying to figure out what to do? There was discussion among the other members of my court about possibly moving forward. Several of our judges were interested in moving forward. There were a lot of very serious considerations, public safety, but also, particularly in the criminal arena, people were in custody when they hadn't had an opportunity to go to trial. So there were a lot of factors to consider. And because some of our judges were talking about going forward, I thought, I'll go forward and I'll do my very best to do it in as safe a way as it can be done and hopefully give some tips in the process to members of my court and other courts about how to undertake this safely. So I did a whole lot of thinking and considering about how I could achieve all of those objectives and have a jury trial without subjecting people to undue risk. We ended up writing a little pamphlet about how it was done. I made that available on request to any other judges who wanted that. And I know a lot of other judges throughout the country use that. So we reconfigured our courtroom to try to maximize safety. I had a consultant at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Branch to assist, who was an infectious disease specialist, to try to help me figure out what I could do within the confines of a limited budget to try to keep everybody safe while having a trial. And we had our first trial in July. So that was just four months after the pandemic began and then had trials steadily thereafter. I was concerned about whether I would have diverse juries at the beginning. I was quite lenient about letting people off of jury duty if they expressed apprehension about being involved in the process because I thought if they were so terribly distracted and concerned that they probably would not be attentive jurors. But as the process evolved and we honed our skills at doing what we needed to keep people safe, I became less willing to release people. And I think people became more confident about their willingness to serve when they knew we had done it safely on many occasions. I can't guarantee that no one ever contracted COVID from being involved in a trial that I conducted, but if they did, I never heard about it. We never had to stop a trial and no one ever reported back afterwards as would have been responsible to do if they had contracted COVID shortly after so that we would have wanted to inform the other jurors. It really gave me a lot of confidence in our community. What I started to say is I worried that we were not going to have a diverse jury panel because at the beginning, minority members of our community were less likely to be vaccinated. And so I thought they would be less willing to be on the jury panel. We were able to have diverse juries from the very beginning throughout the pandemic. Excellent. Quite an experience. And we've all learned so much from the pandemic and from all the work that you and others have done. Game changer in the law that we're hearing about in the news, and that is AI. And I was wondering what your thinking is on what you're seeing. And do you have any predictions on how it will or will not improve the practice of trial lawyers? Well, in in a very limited way, AI is the nef- next iteration of online legal research. So I don't have a problem with the availability of enhanced tools to make 
legal research better and more comprehensive. But one of my colleagues, Judge Brantley Starr, has adopted a special rule directed to use of AI to in drafting briefs because there is an example of a recent filing, not in our court, where all the citations were made up by AI to support the conclusions that artificial intelligence came to about the research assignment. So that risk is real and we can't abide that. And AI doesn't replace lawyers. It's a starting point that can be used effectively, but it has to be well-managed. I, like most people, am very worried about where AI will take us. The internet, in my experience, despite the profound advances that the internet has facilitated, is also a tool for criminal and fraudulent behavior. And so will AI be that. I worry that crimes will be committed with the assistance of artificial intelligence, that we'll figure out a way to avoid detection and thereby enhance criminal behavior. So it can be the dark web on steroids. I appreciate technological advances, but I think that countries throughout the world would be well advised to think through what controls can be implemented across the globe to make sure that this is not a system run amok. Yeah, excellent point. Now for my final question. If you could have dinner with any historical figure, who would it be and why? I think I would have to say Thomas Jefferson. So if you went to the University of Virginia, you believe that Thomas Jefferson was living somewhere on the grounds of the University of Virginia. As far as students there are concerned, he never died. He lives on. He wasn't a perfect character by any means. His record on slavery is certainly something that deserves and has received examination. But he was a brilliant, forward thinker. I think I could learn a lot from him, and I'd like to have a conversation with him about all of his inventions, what he thinks of the world today, what he thinks of diversity in the world, and how things have changed since he was alive. That's a tribute to my university, UVA. Great, great answer. I think that brings us to the end of our hour today. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Renee. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to Trial Tested, a podcast by the American College of Trial Lawyers. ACTL is dedicated to maintaining and improving the standards of trial practice, professionalism, ethics, and the administration of justice. Subscribe now to catch every inspiring episode.